Welcome to the Self Renewal Podcast. This is your host, Sam Sager. I'm excited to kick off a mini season on how we work and how organizations themselves can be self-renewing entities. First up is a conversation with Cecile Marion, where we talk about her journey into consulting and the corporate world, how people can thrive within big businesses, what makes some companies more capable of adapting to change and innovating, the power of a sabbatical, and her emerging vision for helping to build a better future. Let's jump in. Cecile, welcome. How are you today? Thank you, Sam. I'm very good, thank you. It's 8 a.m. in Bali. I've just had a nice um, morning exercise in the sun. I feel feel really good. Thank you very much for having me here for a chat. That's amazing. Yes, it's so fun to connect with people a- across the world, and you know, it's it's evening here, and it's uh, you're an entire day ahead. So um, I'm really looking forward to to this discussion. Um, there's so much I, I want to chat with you about. I know the theme of, of self-renewal is one I've been discussing with people and talking a lot about individuals. Um, but another angle with that is organizations and both how organizations impact our at people's ability to thrive within them, but also how organizations can adapt and, and be innovative themselves. And so I'm really excited to chat a bit about that with you. Before we jump into all of the the corporate stuff, I, I feel like you have a fascinating childhood and, and a bit different than a lot of people. And I'd, I'd love to to hear a bit about that, if you don't mind sharing. I'm, I'm very happy to share. I, I don't know if fascinating is the right, uh, is the right word for me. It feels like a very normal childhood because obviously from my perspective, it's the only one I've ever known. <laughs> for sure. But, um, so I'm French, which I think is, um, one of the big identities that I, I have, but I was born in London and I, and I spent the first 10 years, roughly a bit more than 10 years of my life in English speaking countries. So I'm French, but only arrived in France probably when I was 10, between 10 and 11, roughly. Um, and I, as, as I moved across countries, started off in London, in, in Great Britain, then moved over to Aberdeen, still GB, um, and then moved over to Australia on the West Coast in Perth. But as I moved through all of those places, um, I moved houses many times as well. So probably, I don't know, 10, 10 times houses in three different countries or four, four different countries, if you count the arrival in France as well. Um, wow. So I think it shaped me. It shaped me in quite deeply in who I am today because I'm, I'm very, very family focused and my, my close family of four kids, two parents was very much the one thing that remains stable throughout my entire childhood. Yeah. I mean, that certainly sounds more unique than, than me growing up in, in one place. And I think, um, you know, it's, it sounds quite adventurous. Are there any, um, particular kind of, as you're thinking about, you know, coming into your early twenties, I, I think a lot of times our cultures shape the type of work we're drawn to. And it seems like you had exposure to a variety of them. How did that affect how you were thinking about what you wanted to do with your life? Oh, big question. Um, yeah, arriving in my early twenties, I also had the, the opportunity to, well, obviously go through like high school, then university and in university, I also had the opportunity to kind of move around a bit and discover this time on my terms, depending on where I wanted to go rather than where my parents wanted to go, but discover Mm. a bit more about other, other cultures and other ways of being. So I, I actually went back to, I started in Paris in university, went back to London for a bit, but 
again, discovering London on my own terms this time, um, went to the US a bit as well in Wisconsin in Madison um, and discovered that kind of university uh, vibe as well over there. And they were incredibly different, despite all being part of what we'd call the Western world. But France both in university terms and even in my the beginning of my career felt a bit more um a bit more scholar i would say so very focused on intellectual progress and learning a bunch of stuff and a hierarchy is quite important and when you're young and you arrive in a company you're there to learn and to listen to the people who are um, your seniors in a sense it's you have to gain their trust before you're given anything of any kind of big responsibility um, to do Um, but in the US when I went over there to university I was stunned to see that one when the teacher spoke people actually answered and actually half the class had their hands up or even they didn't they just chipped in and they wanted to talk in France that doesn't happen people well one the teachers don't ask that many questions they kind of give um information and they give teachings um but when they do ask questions we're not well practiced um to answering questions so there's often like one or two people who are comfortable doing that and the others who are just thinking about no just not me not me I don't I don't want to I don't want to participate or I don't I want to make sure that I say something smart and I'll only talk if I say something smart And it felt like in the US, people were a lot freer, which meant that they Mm. got a lot more practice at talking, vocalizing their opinions, um, and which is something that I was not well well practiced at, um, given the journey I went through in uh, French schools and French university. It's it's so interesting to to think about how the cultural differences shape how kind of people show up in school. So when you were were at that time and kind of collecting all those those activities and, and experiences, how were you thinking about what you wanted to do and um, where where you were going to take your your education and and how you were going to kind of jump into the into the world from there? It's a, it's an interesting one. It's um, it's kind of completely different to how I'm approaching my work and my life right now. So I'm going mm. to project myself back into who I was at that point in time and think with the way that she used to think. Um, But I was very much, when I was 20 and even later than that, very much on uh, on the path, uh, where the path for me was, well, some people have, you know, entrepreneurial parents, and for them the path is like, oh, well, you know, start a business and I'll try this and I'll try that, cool. And that feels like the path for them because they've they've had, they've, they've kind of swam into this perspective their entire lives. And for me... The path was very much, um, well, one, go to university. There was no question about whether I was going to go or not. It's like, yes, I will go, and I will go to the best one that I can manage to get into. Um, And then the path kind of led me towards, well, you're going to work for a company, right? Because that's what your parents did, your grandparents. They all worked for corporates. They all had quite enriching corporate careers as well. So there was no reason why, when I was looking at them, I would think, oh, actually, I don't want that. So I kind of followed in the the footsteps of the people who were around me and kind of showed me showed me the way on that path. And that's how I ended up going through university and uh, and starting working for companies. 
I did have a bit of a slight, uh, a slight personal thing to it, which is that I didn't, my, all, my, all of my family are engineers. I'm not. I am absolutely not an engineer. Um, grandparents were working in uh, um, oil and gas and infrastructure uh, building. My parents were also in energy um, and and they did that from an engineering angle. I went to business school, so learned a bunch of, you know, strategy, mergers, acquisitions, finance, accounting, economy, um, and and that was the angle with which I entered the workforce. So much more as a as a generalist who's not going to be focused on on engineering roles and I didn't enter the workforce in corporates I entered the workforce in consulting which was also very different from well very different to a certain extent different from what um the rest of the adults around me had been doing because they were all working for corporates rather than consulting yeah how did the engineers in the family feel about the uh the business degree and uh, I think in the very beginning there might have been a bit of a Oh, but a bit of an element of surprise, um, not because uh, they didn't think it was a good thing. It's just that they didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, so there's like, if she had gone, I'm talking almost from my parents' perspective here, but if she had gone into um, an engineering school and engineering roles, then it would have been roles that they fully understood uh, because right. they'd gone through the entire journey themselves. But with me going into business, there was also an element, I think, of that's probably good, um, but we can't help. So we're going to have to kind of let go and let her do her thing, which is is great. You know, when you're you're nineteen, twenty, and you're finally starting to find your own path for for yourself, it took me a while. <laughs> yeah, well, I I think it's it's become popular to you know talk about how entrepreneurship and people working on their own is is kind of the only way or the best way, and yet you know the vast majority of people are working with companies as employees. A lot of them are working for really big companies. And I think you have a really interesting experience and perspective on that. And so I'd love to to dig in there a bit. So can you just, you know, it sounds like you started in consulting. You know, what was that like, you know, coming in and jumping into the world of consulting? It was honestly, it was great. Um it was one of the best things I think that I could have started my career with or started work with. Um it felt like a a very easy transition from university into the world of work to start with because um most of most of the people who were working at the consultancy I was working at that was in Paris in France um they were all very young um very passionate about what they were doing um they all kind of got along really well with each other I made some good friends over over there and was very happy to go to work um every morning well most days <laughs> um and uh and I was lucky enough also to be part of a consultancy that was relatively small so we so it was 200 people in total but the people who were focusing on the energy sector which I was which was the team I was a part of uh, that was probably 12 people so a very tightly knit group who was committed to doing really really good work for some of the big corporates um that were in the energy sector in France, so the likes of Total in uh, energy industry, Air Liquide, um, those kinds of big names in France, and it felt so. So it felt very smooth going into this, and then it felt like those almost four years in in the consultancy role were an excellent way for me to shape my first work skills in a way that um, 
that university hadn't done. So university, as I mentioned, was mostly very intellectual. You learn a bunch of things and you kind of store them in your head as intellectual things that are good to know. <laughs> um, but you're not really massively taught how to be at work and how to do work in a way that companies actually value profoundly, like in a way that makes sense. So consultancy was great for that. It taught me that um, I was put in front of clients extremely quickly. After the first two weeks, I think I was making my first presentation to, to my first clients, a startup. Um, and uh, and so, so I, I kind of, I understood, I had that relationship with the clients really quickly, which meant that I knew I was delivering something of value to this person. And it was this person that I needed to make sure was comfortable with what I was doing and they saw the quality in what I was doing. So it gave me that element of relationship with the client. It gave me an element also of, uh, of seeking for really high quality. Consultancies can't really afford to hand in a deliverable that's um, half met or not even or not aesthetically pleasing. So the high standards for aesthetics and content um, uh, were ex have been then extremely valuable throughout my career afterwards. And I think the the other the other thing that it taught me was, in addition to all the market research and market analysis that I was doing, which was like the bread and butter of um, of what we were doing, um, it taught me how to think in in a very different way because the outputs that you produce or we produced at least were mostly in powerpoint because that's what is used um to communicate between the clients and uh well between us and the clients so everything that you think about needs to be converted into that format and it it's very different from having to write things down in words one after the next or paragraphs one after the next. You have to make it visually compelling. You have to, and you can, and you, and you can use PowerPoint to express ideas that you wouldn't have been able to express in a word document without explaining them for a hundred words or even a no, hundred words is not that much, but a thousand words would have, to, would have, you would have needed a thousand words to explain a thing that in a small diagram in PowerPoint, you're able to explain really quickly. And actually when you make the diagram in PowerPoint, you realize, Ooh, I'm actually missing something really important. And it became obvious as I was drawing the thing, but it wouldn't have been obvious if I had written everything down on PowerPoint on word. So that aspect of it taught me how to think visually in a sense. So it's kind of like I acquired a second language yeah. to approach to approach work there were words on one side spoken written and then there was visual thinking yeah I definitely want to dig into more of the visual thinking stuff uh, later on because I think it's it's something that you've shared a good bit about and I, I definitely admire kind of th that as a skill uh, I think PowerPoint also gets a bad rep and yet if you see someone yes. who's really really talented at it it's almost like a work of art their ability to distill the ideas and um, yeah, so I also started my career in management consulting. And so you're, you're bringing me back uh, a bit to that time. And I remember early on, you know, first couple of weeks meeting with a client and thinking like, I don't know anything. I just came out of school. Like you're throwing me into this craziness. And so it's such a powerful learning opportunity, but I don't think everybody makes the most of it. I think some people, you know, jump in and, and really, you know, take advantage of the opportunity and others just view it as a job and, you know, punch the clock. I'm curious if you have any any thoughts on, you know, mindsets you had or things that you did during those four years 
that really helped you get the most out of the experience and grow from it um, more so maybe than other people? I, I'd love to say that I had a plan when I went into consulting, like, you know, a proper, I will build those skills and I will get good at, you know, all of those things. But I, um, <clears throat> I didn't, I, <laughs> I went into there because I wanted to work on really cool stuff. And for me, cool meant projects that will change a bit of the world or a big bit of the world in, in some way and, uh, projects that, that people care about a lot. Usually the overlap between those two things is obviously quite high. The more, the more impact the project is going to have, the more people, you know, around you and the more senior people care about it. But I went into it thinking, I want to work on the cool stuff. I want to work on things that people want to talk to me about. And I really want to impress them. Mm. <laughs> There was an element of I will demonstrate that I'm really good at this. So I think that's that's yeah. one of the things that really drove me throughout my my career, my bit of career in consulting, and that helped me upskill really quickly because I just wanted to produce something that was not just a nice work of art on PowerPoint that would then go into a cupboard and never be seen again. I wanted to produce something that not only looked like a work of art and it was aesthetically pleasing, but actually made a big difference to the person who had bought um, our time and our skill set. Yeah. No, the standards and and kind of both the standards and pace, I think, of consulting for people who haven't experienced it are, are really no joke. And it it's a great way to cut your teeth and develop a, a lot of a lot of skills very fast. I, I got a taste to Fortune 500 companies in that work and I, I kind of immediately ran the other direction. I was like, I don't ever want to be on that side of the table just because of how large and, and bureaucratic the ones that I had worked with were. But I think that you, it seems like, went the other direction and you went from consulting more towards corporate, more towards bigger companies. Um, and I'd love to hear about that because I think we hear a lot about the negatives and I don't think we hear a lot about the positives. Um, yeah, that's a very good question. And I agree with you. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of <laughs> corporates get a lot of bad rap. And I think uh, often it's, it's quite unfair. There's, there's some things that are really fair. And honestly, when you are in the corporates, you're like, oh, I really wish I didn't have to deal with this. But there's also a lot of really good stuff. So um, I will endeavor to, to share um, some of this good stuff um, that I, that I happily enjoyed for quite some time. But so I worked in in consulting for probably three, four years, uh, almost four years in Paris. And then I got, um, I got a bit tired of it. I think the, the team had changed drastically um, and I didn't know anyone anymore. It didn't feel like a, a family and, uh, and people I wanted to work with as much um, anymore. I also wanted to progress to something new um, and didn't have the opportunity just just yet because of the very small team that um, that I was in in the consultancy. So I, I kind of needed an out. Um, so I looked at quite a few things, but I actually realized afterwards I wasn't I wasn't looking at consultancy at all. I was looking at yeah companies moving into into more corporate environments, whether big or small. And I pursued a few opportunities, but ultimately I took one. Um, I took one in London for a small corporate. It's, it was a 
calling it a small corporate, but technically it was like the corporate headquarters of a company of 200 people, roughly. So it's, I don't think that doesn't count as a corporate, it's more of a medium-sized business. Um, but I, I decided to move into that world. I think one, remember, I was still on kind of on the path with a lot of people around me who were working in those kinds of environments or in those massive corporates. So for me, it wasn't, it didn't feel at all like an environment that I wouldn't thrive in. It actually felt like, oh, you know, so many people I know have thrived in this kind of environment. I want to experience it too. So I moved, I was, I happily moved into that medium sized business and then I happily moved into London. Um, also probably because of the path that I had been on ever since I was a child. My family, when I was a kid, was expat for 10 years. Both of my parents, when they were kids, were also expats with their own parents for, I think it was minimum four years on one side and the other side, um, 10 years as well. So again, being an expat, leaving your country and for work for me was absolutely normal. And if anything, it kind of, it kind of was some, it was something that I wanted to do as well. So that's how I ended up in, in London working for a, a medium, a medium sized corporate. And I started experiencing what that environment felt like. And it, and it was not bureaucratic. You mentioned bureaucracy before, because yes, the bigger corporates have that element of bureaucracy. That one was a much more dynamic, uh, dynamic business. It was also a business that, um, that was in the oil and gas sector. And when I joined, um, very quickly afterwards, the price of the barrel, um, dropped heavily. <laughs> so we had a, we had a, well, fun time. Fun is probably not, um, the right, uh, the right word to use, but we had an interesting time navigating those those circumstances and I kind of navigated started navigating the energy sector from within a business in circumstances that felt a bit uh, a bit difficult but I enjoyed a few things that felt very different from consulting one was I had a role that was well defined and that was mine I was the only person in the company who was responsible for doing that um, whereas in consulting, you're kind of interchangeable, mostly. Um, if you can't do the work one day, then one of your colleagues will come in and step in. But in a company or corporates or small business, you're kind of the only one who's at least accountable for doing it. doesn't mean that anyone else can do it and can't do it, but um, you're accountable for it. Um, so I had my first experience of uh, doing market analysis, market research, same thing as what I used to do in corporates, but in consulting, but for that business. And I also had my first experience of doing proper business development and getting, getting clients in for the company. And I, I helped one of the, uh, big sales efforts, um, that we were making in Africa to kind of shape what the, shape what the market could look like, what clients we should go up. Uh, we should we should go for which tenders we should we should go for and again all of those things felt like really practical things that I could do to bring revenue into the company and the revenue wasn't the most important thing it was just bring business in and therefore see people getting busy and being happy being busy with the business that was being brought in and that's something that I did not have in consulting and consulting you you have one interface, it's your interface with your client, but then once you hand the project in, 
they're the ones who make things happen inside the business. You're, you don't see any of the things that happen once you've handed your strategy or your market analysis in. You step away and then you move on to a different company and do something else. But seeing, finally, finally being, being able to roll the strategy out or, or, or genuinely do the business development work that then led into, oh, we've got a contract. This is really exciting. A client decided to trust us and blah, blah. That felt very different and very empowering in a way. Yeah, that was the part that that drove me crazy about consulting was just handing over the the PowerPoint deck and the strategy and you know leaving it leaving it to somebody else to to work on. Is there anything that um, that organization did that was specifically supportive of? Um, you know, it sounded like it was a relatively innovative organization, and I'm fascinated by how <laughs> your 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 phases imply that, that maybe not so innovative. Uh, but I, I'm fascinated how, by how you know some organizations. I've I've kind of worked with a variety over the years. Some of them feel you know very rigid, like people who've aged and they've just gotten stuck in their ways, and the the organizations just do one thing. I, I think you know Clayton Christian talked about the innovators' dilemma, where they're like they're weighed down by that. But then there's other ones that are constantly adapting and and evolving, and I think that's where you know an organization itself can start to be capable of renewal. I'm curious if this organization is one that you felt like was like that. Or if there's any others that you encountered that 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 had those characteristics, I I wouldn't count. I think this specific organization as an innovative one because technically, what happened is that they were forced. We were all forced to be innovative because because there was a crisis that was well not only looming but that was on us. We were within the eye of the storm, and we needed to figure things figure something out to get out of the eye of the storm basically so you have to be innovative in, in those circumstances but I don't think it was part of the uh I wouldn't say it was part of the DNA of the organization uh, to be creative and innovative although some people were um of course and those were the people who were thriving within that eye of the storm situation but I actually I I, I agree with you some organizations seem to be just built for change and built to want to change and to want to do things for the better. And that's definitely um, the DNA of the organization that I joined after this one. So after this medium-sized business, I I stayed there for probably two and a half years. And then I decided to move, I decided to do two things. So move away from oil and gas because I didn't feel comfortable working for a, sec- the, a sector in a way that didn't feel like I was helping innovate towards building a more decarbonized future. It was still very much the part of the sector um, that was just doing business as usual and uh, doing maintenance on oil oil fields and gas fields in the North Sea or in, uh, in, or, or in the Bay uh, next to Houston. Um, it's just it was in the Gulf of Mexico. It just wasn't, um, it didn't feel like I was making a difference in a positive way in the world. So I wanted to move away from that and move towards something a bit more purpose-led or purposeful. Um, and then the other thing was that by working at those corporate corporate headquarters and calling them corporate headquarters, but it was effectively 12, 20 people maybe, it was very small. And I wanted something a lot bigger, something that where I felt I could kind of 
almost spread my wings and go, all right, where do I want to go to next? I could do this. I could do that. I could do loads of things. So I, I, I started focusing my attention on much bigger businesses at this point. And this is how I moved into a big corporate. So I moved at that point from that small consultancy into, um, into a big, I'm now hesitant as to how big it was, but I'm going to say like, it's a FTSE 100 company in the UK. So uh, really, really big corporate focused on the energy sector and in energy networks in particular. And I joined an entity within that company that was roughly a thousand people entity. Um, so yeah, moving from a company of where H- HQ was like 20 and I was part of the HQ out of a 200 people company and moving to a company where I was suddenly part of a team of a thousand within a 30,000 people company felt suddenly like, Ooh, okay, I've got a breath of fresh air because I can do so much more things in here. And I also moved into a company that was in the electricity industry, was focused on doing we're starting rather starting to get focused on doing things differently in the energy industry and and starting to move towards more decarbonization and wanting to change the world in a way and the entity that i joined in particular um i joined i joined that entity because they had created a new team for which they were recru- recruiting people for and for for which they recruited me which was a team that was a strategy team and an innovation team those strategy teams and innovation teams didn't exist in the entity before at all. It's just that the thousand people entity had decided that they genuinely needed to set an intent as to where they wanted to go. They wanted that intent to be positive, constructive, and to change the world. And they needed people to come in and help them shape that strategy and then build kind of a bunch of innovation projects around it to help drive it forward. So we, I joined that thousand people entity or company um, alongside a dozen people who were all coming from completely different backgrounds and who were kind of coming in to, to help revolutionize the way that the company was working. And that felt good. <laughs> so yeah. good. Like finally I get to work in a sector that's going to make a difference. And I get to join a team that's made of, you know, loads of different kinds of people coming from all over the place. And I get to be the ca- part of the team that's making a, that's the catalyst for change in a way. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's amazing. It seems like there was so much alignment there with where you were in your, in your trajectory and, and what they were offering. It's funny. I, I think a lot of people just miss that organizations are just people, right? Like, you know, we, we talk about them like this and it's just a group of people who are coming together and they're either working well together or they're not. And I, I think it brings up this idea that like ultimately the things that happen within them are driven by individuals. And I'm curious if you have a perspective on, you know, as you stepped into that role or just in general, like how, how can somebody better thrive as a corporate? Like what what is it that makes somebody capable of stepping into an organization like that and driving strategy, driving innovation, being a contributor to those types of things? Honestly, I think it's not, it's hard work. Um, but with, if you've got the drive, you can absolutely do it. So, and, and I have to admit when I stepped into the corporate in the beginning corporate world, I had a bit of a similar view, um, as to what a corporate felt like as the one that you just described is kind of like a 
a corporate is a big group of I wouldn't didn't even want to say a group of individuals they kind of work together. Mm. It felt like a big group of of people, but kind of un- unidentified people who just worked on a thing. When I stepped into the world of corporates, I then realized, right, it's actually made of a bunch of different people, all with different characters, experiences, backgrounds, who are all bringing something completely different to the company. And the key, as you said, is getting make creating the space for all of those people to work well together. Um, Mm. And if you don't create the space for them to work well, then suddenly all of the uniqueness that comes with their skills and characters and experiences, that kind of disappears because if you're not rewarding it, if you're not valuing it, then they stop bringing it into the company. So, So really it's key to have ways of working that feel... That, that just create the right atmosphere for, for people to genuinely bring all all of their potential into work. But stepping into, into that world um, within that small team who uh, who was made out of all of those people with, you know, very specific skills, very complementary skills. So I came in with my kind of strategy analysis, commercial background, and others came in with like their knowledge of, uh, the network and the energy industry and uh, their ability to drive change, for example. And then people, ca- others came in with like, oh, and I've driven innovation projects and I've built an innovation team in a different country and I'm going to do this in this company again here. Suddenly you kind of see like, oh, we all have different pieces of the puzzle. And if we, by coming together, we can create this massive positive change in the company. The difficulty that uh, that we had, obviously, is that we were all new. So there was none of us had a network inside the company already. So we kind of came in with all of our uniqueness into a company that still felt a bit like a blob because we we didn't know the people. So we had to work our way through getting to know the people, um, who was responsible for what, what was their uniqueness. Um, how we could work with each and every one of them, who we didn't need to work with because it didn't it didn't make sense for the projects and it didn't make sense for them either, either for us to engage with them. So there was a lot of work that needed to be done in the first place to get to know the DNA of the company and to start f- to feel the pulse of how it worked. And that genuinely means just building relationships and that's one-on-one relationships you don't have a relationship with a team you have a relationship with one person in the team or the head of the team or whatever and and the when you join a big corporate the first thing that you have to do is get your get your hand on the pulse and get to know those people and build your network and depending on the project that you're in you'll get to um you'll get to kind of put your hand on the pulse of um of a part of the company or another but for me coming in and working on strategy that meant I had to understand the entire organization I couldn't start working on strategy just with one part of the company I had to kind of make sure I I understood what every single bit of the company did what what they cared about what their perspective on the future was and then to bring all of those perspectives into one room to have that strategy conversation. 
And that I think was when I, as I was doing that, I realized the true power of, of knowing the people, knowing, understanding their uniqueness and what they do in everyday life. That's, that's how you build an influential position almost in the company. And that's how you do good work. You can't do good work on your own. The whole point is that of being in a company is that you work with others and you get their perspectives. So you need to go ask for help. You need to, to go talk to people so that they enrich your work. And, and that was, I think one of the big, big learnings I had for the first six months, like what's the key skill here? Being able to engage people in a way that makes them feel valued. So they want to keep engaging with you. Number one skill. And then I'd say a second skill, um, well, that was relevant particularly to my work, obviously, was like, how do you shape the direction moving forward? How do you shape strategy for your team for a project or in my case for the company? Who needs to be involved? What does inspiring mean to those people? Um, if they, if I ask them to be ambitious about this thing, then they tell me, oh, I, I'm okay, I'm going to be ambitious. I'm going to say that we're going to do X. Like, right. How ambitious is really that? Is that really? Can you 10x that? Can you 100x that? And then suddenly they start, you kind of start pushing them into that direction. So, and, and to, to be into being more ambitious. So I think second, second skill is really how do you shape that direction? How do you push people into seeing bigger things and being even more enthusiastic about the stuff that they come up with? And I'd say the third, the third thing is, um, is just get shit done. <laughs> Uh, so if that's one of the problems that I've seen in big, big organizations, it's very easy to drown into admin and into processes and into just decision-making processes that never end because you never actually get confirmation on where you're meant to go to next. And suddenly the stuff that you're working on disappears because probably because it wasn't important in the first place if people didn't care about it. So there's an element of in the get shit done skill, which is figure out what it is that people really care about, work on those things exclusively, do not work on things that people don't care about. And then when people do care about it, then make sure they get what they need. And, and that means that you're responsible for figuring out how to get it done and then liaising with people around the business to get it done. And then you're responsible for the quality of the output as well, which is where my consultancy is helped a lot because the quality that I could bring into the small team or quality of outputs that I could bring into the company was, I'd say, even higher than the average kind of output that you would see in, in corporates. So yeah, three skills, engage people, um, define a strategy, be able to define a strategy, be it for your team, for your project, for the company. It's just define a direction and then get shit done. I think you just described, you know, very well the people that I've seen who thrive in in those corporate settings, and it seems like a pretty clear playbook. Do you, I mean, a lot of those are, are kind of a little bit softer than some other skills. Do you think stuff like that can be taught? Is that is that something that you know people can learn, or just do some people have that and others don't? 
I think everyone can learn this. Um, I think different people have different appetites for learning those things. And some people might not want to learn them. Some people might not want to work on the high exposure, high impact stuff in the companies. They actually might want to go to work and almost clock in and out and know that when they have clocked in, they're working on stuff that matters. But then when they clock out, they're out. And that's, you know, absolutely fine. Um, but I think there's, uh, and I've seen quite a lot of them. I've, I think there's like a, a a specific type of people, which I like to call intrapreneurs or corporate intrapreneurs who kind of come in and want to make huge transformation, want to, want to drive things for the better, um, and want to get known and want to impress. And, you know, they, they, while they kind of get all of those positive duns in the process of wanting to impress others and show their competence, whatever they're driven by, you know, whether it's building a better future or just demonstrating that they're competent, they do good (laughs) in style of companies. So, you know, let's take the good. Um, And I think that that can absolutely be, that can absolutely be taught. This is something that I've been thinking about a bit, like how, how could I help people who are coming into corporates figure out, and I'm putting this almost in inverted commas, but how can I help them figure out how to corporate? Well, because it, it takes a lot of time to get used to the corporate world, honestly, if particularly if you don't have a mentor or someone who's guiding you through this. And there's a lot of things that happen in the cor- in corporates, like behaviors or rules that are completely unsaid that your manager almost expects you to know, that, that you feel you're expected by everyone else to be aware of and to know and suddenly when you're confronted to it you have no idea what to do so the kind of it's it's a bit silly but the first time you arrive in a big corporate there's like a thousand people or even 30,000 people that are around you and part of that business and then suddenly your manager tells you um I'll just ask just go ask that other person for x the output of their work and you know integrate that into your project you've never talked to that person ever why, so how do you reach out to them? Um, who, what kind of person are they? Why on earth would they give you the outputs of the hard work that they've been doing over the past few months, just because you show up and ask for it. So there's a whole bunch of things that you need to navigate as a person who just arrives in a corporate and is building their new network to be able to do your job well and build good relationships in the program, in the process. And this is exactly the kind of unsaid skill how to corporate skill that is not taught anywhere and that I wish I could share a bit more I'm not sure what that looks like just yet but um but there's definitely a how to corporate skill that can be taught it's like having a you know a mentor in your back pocket that kind of guides you through all of those weird situations that every time that you come up uh you you come you come up against them um in real time so that that I think, yeah, it can be taught. It's kind of like mentoring. Um, then the how to engage with people. Um, there's a lot of stuff already out on the internet on how to engage people, but I I don't think most of the stuff that I've seen doesn't really fit how to engage people internally and within corporates. The usual kind of things that you see on the internet are how to make good presentations to impress, or how to um, yeah, how to how to speak. Uh, in front of a crowd so that you galvanize them and that kind of stuff. But it, I haven't seen anywhere anyone explain how you talk to decision makers within a 
company so that they actually they support your work because just as an example in t- internally companies almost it, it i kind of want to compare it to consulting as well because internally whenever you're presenting your project to say the executive committee or senior leaders you come in with a powerpoint you present your project and then you ask for whatever it is budget a decision on the way forward and and the senior leaders or the exec team tell you yes or no or no you will not have that much money or whatever but there's a an element of coming in presenting and then going away with their decision but if you do that in a, in the way that i've just described that is going to fail absolutely fail what you need to do is actually engage you need to understand what each and every one of those leaders cares about and hence what kind of challenges they're going to come up with or questions when you come in to present the work but that's not enough when you step into the room what you want is you actually want 90% or 95% of the decision making to have already been made and you want to use the last 5-10% to get the cohesive agreement from the group a public agreement on the way forward but technically what you've done before you've stepped into the room is you've actually talked to all the most important people of the room and by important i mean the ones that have the most impact on your project and on the decision and you already know what they think about your project you've already integrated what their problems and challenges are into your reflection and therefore when you come back to present your project to the entire team their concerns have already been addressed and therefore they are they will they will support you in the way forward so 90% of the work needs to be done before you step into that room and present and that's the kind of stuff that <laughs> is not taught <laughs> so yeah. that's i think something that can absolutely be taught i'm i'd be re- I, i'm i'm really excited at the idea of helping people understand what that process looks like and how you can use visual thinking as well to to help those senior leaders think differently about the the project that you're coming up with and and the solution that they need to come together uh, that they need to come up with as a group that would be so helpful and powerful i think for for most people it certainly would have helped me when i was entering that strange land and looking around and trying to figure out what the the heck was going on there I could chat about this organizational stuff for forever because I think it's so fascinating how these large organizations operate and the kind of the impact they have on our world. You know, they, they're just, um, it almost feels like for the people who are not involved in them that they're kind of behind the scenes and just operating in, in the dark and you never really know what's going on. And so it's cool to hear a picture. But I also want to dig into you know, this next chapter of your life, because I, I think it's fascinating, um, kind of the shift that you've made. And so I'd, I'd love to start talking about your sabbatical. What, what made you decide that it was time to take a sabbatical? And what was that process like? Oh, that was a hard process. <laughs> it was really hard. So I, I think I want to start with, um, with the fact that I'd, I was, 34 when I started thinking about this I'd been working for more than a decade um in you know proper work proper proper jobs but technically I'd been working quite hard for a long long time because I was already working hard at university I already was working hard before that to make sure I would I could get into the right university so I think by the point I was 30 
34, 35, whatever, um, I probably had worked hard for two decades um, and without really having had a break. I didn't mind it too much per se because I got to work on really cool stuff and I was kind of directing myself to work on really cool stuff. So I was almost exhausting myself but working on things that I cared so much about that I was happy exhausting myself doing it (laughs) um but at some point uh in the last two years just before I went on sabbatical I took on a new role um that was one of the most fun um, one of the best roles I've I've ever had it was quite a senior role so new to me as well and I came in um in the same way that I came in actually as part of the strategy team when I joined that company in the first in the first uh, instance and there was no strategy team that existed, this time I was responsible for creating a brand new team inside the company that was going to be focused on helping the company grow its, its workforce and help recruit a bunch of new people to deliver on the super ambitious ambitions it, it, just, it had just set. Um, so recruit a bunch of people, help people within the company learn and navigate the company so that they had, you know, fruitful careers and really thrived in the company. So there was a, it was a, I'll call it a people and people and capability, people and culture kind of team that needed to be built from scratch. So I did that. And at the same time, COVID hit, by the way. So I was two years, uh, into that new role, um, and into COVID, which meant that like for everyone, no social interactions for quite some time or very hard to to have any kind of social interactions. So I kind of dived headfirst into work for those final two years and was thriving in the experience I was getting and the impact I was making. But I was really, really tired. <laughs> so I got, I got, yeah, I got really tired. I started getting interestingly kind of signals from from my body that it was enough. So I started getting pain in my neck or started feeling exhaustion at some points in time that I'd never felt before. So I started, I started listening a little bit more to Mm. those signals from my body going like, Hmm, something's up. (laughs) I probably need something to change because that's not a sustainable this position that I'm in right now is not a sustainable position I could not keep doing this for years on end despite loving it I can't keep doing this up until uh I retire and then finally I can relax like no I actually want to take some time off while I'm 35 not while I'm 65 um but while I'm 35 so I still have you know energy to pour into myself and traveling and discovering how I could work differently in a way that's actually sustainable. Um, so that's what drove me to into taking, into asking for a sabbatical and then taking it. So it's a 12, 12 month sabbatical was a bit of a, an interesting discussion with my company as well as to whether they would be comfortable with me going on sabbatical or not. They, they were, they were very supportive very supportive company in in that sense but they did tell me you know <laughs> initially it was like 
yes, you can, but you have a seven month notice period before your sabbatical. <laughs> seven? <laughs> I need to go now. <laughs> so ultimately we negotiated and after I, I, I got to leave it's still four months between the moment I asked for my sabbatical and the moment I get it so that I made sure that I could, you know, close off all of the important projects and then hand over all the work to someone else who would, uh, who would take over from me. Um, and then finally I was able in January, 2022 at the beginning of the year to, to leave on that on those 12 months thankfully you had some of those skills to get the decision makers to change their mind and to to influence them so (laughs) a a big a big theme of of kind of all these discussions is this idea of kind of self-renewal and how we can create conditions that enable ourselves to evolve and to adapt and you know both when change is thrown at us as you described earlier but also you know intentionally create processes for that as well uh, and from what I've seen, it seems like this has been, you know, quite a season of of self renewal and and evolution for you. So, as you created space and and stepped away from work a bit, what what has emerged? It's been it's been wonderful, honestly. I really do highly recommend to anyone who has the the, the gut feel that they need to do this um, to actually do this if they can. Um, I I had no idea what to expect. I stepped into the sabbatical with like an open arms and an open heart in a sense, um, not knowing how I was going to change, but hoping that I was going to change fundamentally (laughs) in a way. (laughs) It's like open up space for personal transformation. Okay. What's emerging? The problem is in the beginning, I actually, um, I actually replaced it with traveling. I replaced work with traveling, which I found actually quite, quite stressful. It was taking up a lot of mental headspace to to figure out where to go to next, to plan for the trip, like obviously accommodation, flights, trains, um, but then also uh, visas and uh, and vaccinations and and whatnot, all of it. But then even once you've travelled, um, you arrive and or we arrived in Mexico for the first of our destination, and it wasn't wholly rosy um, immediately. Like right, we've just arrived in Mexico. We're here in this location for a month. And it actually takes two two weeks probably to get used to a new place, to finding your ground, finding your routine, and then finally getting a sense of of relaxation into the new place such that other things can emerge rather than just, I need to get used to this place. So it was great to go on those nomad travels. I don't, I don't regret it, um, but nothing really deep inside of me transformed during that period because I was so almost a bit stressed out chronically in the background, both from the decade of work and from the travel arrangements and settling in that that were just happening constantly. So the moment where I started to relax really fully was when we arrived in Indonesia um, I'm traveling with my partner right now. Uh, so we arrived in Indonesia in July. It is now September. So we've been here for a bit more than two months. Um, and we decided that we'd stay here for a sufficient amount of time that we'd, we'd finally get time to fully relax and, and be into this new space. And ever since then, that's when all of the genuine transformations have really, really hit me. It's when I got that sense of space, true sense of space. And it's it's like genuine space. So we've got like 
a terrace out there that I can exercise in. I can walk onto the terrace and exercise in the sun. I've never had that before. And for the first time, I actually enjoyed just stepping 10 steps and enjoying uh, start, starting to exercise, feeling the the enjoyment of my muscles as I exercised and as I made every single movement, enjoying the warmth of the sun, early morning sun that was on my skin. And instead of like I used to when I was in my corporate work, going to the gym and, you know, exercising really hard because that's that's kind of, I've got an hour, I can do this now and and then I'll be fit and I'll feel good and, and I'll go back home and I'll have dinner, et cetera. Just this kind of exercising feels radically different to me and a lot more joyful and a lot more meaningful. Um, it's part of my day. I wake up and immediately I step 10 steps and I exercise out in the sun and then I go mind my own business somewhere else. I don't, I get on with my day. I, it's just, it's such a big difference to exercise under stress and exercise because you have the space and you actually genuinely want to. That's been one of the big changes. It's kind of that, that sense of embodiment of what, what I truly want and what I truly need to do right now. Exercise is one example, but stretching is another one. I used to not stretch. I hated that. It felt like a waste of time because anytime that I sat down on the mat trying to stretch my hamstrings or whatever, and I, I knew they needed to be stretched. Um, <laughs> <laughs> every time I sat down on the mat, I thought I could be doing some cardio or I could be doing some strength exercise, strength training. And this is not, stretching is not what I want to be doing right now. So I'd get off the mat and go do some cardio or some, or some, or some strength training because that felt more valuable in a way. Um, but being here and having the space to, to both the space physically and the space in my mind to listen to what my body needs, I now understand that actually my hamstrings are calling out to be stretched. <laughs> like just do it. And like, and, and when I do it, like, oh, this feels, this feels really good. And I enjoy the process of stretching rather than the outcome of having stretched, which is what would have happened with exercising or even with stretching if I had done that in, in my, uh, while I was in, in the corporate world. And then there's stuff like I've tried to quit sugar for forever. And sugar has been kind of my fuel for a lot of things. It gives me energy. It gives me um, enthusiasm for things. I just, it, I didn't even know I was doing it kind of before a big presentation and I, where I needed to be psyched to just like have one square, two squares of chocolate and then, uh, and then go and make the presentation and I'd be psyched for it. Um, and I, I, at some point I started figuring out, right, I need to stop because that's a bit, it's just a bit too much. And um, I don't want to, to see the damage to, to, I don't want my body to have any damage, uh, from sugar, from, you know, sugar intake for year after year for, for years on end. Um, so I need to stop and I probably tried stopping, I don't know, 10 times, 20 times, I don't know how many times and every single time it failed. But here now that again, I've learned to start listening to what my body needs. I'm starting to hear that actually I don't want sugar. That's, that's just done. So now I eat low sugar, but I didn't do anything. I didn't, it wasn't like a sudden decision of, right, I'm going to stop. And it's because it's bad for me. It's, I suddenly stopped because my body told me 
oh yeah, that's enough. We've had a good run. <laughs> and, and there's so many of those things that have come up. I'm talking about exercising, stretching and sugar, but dealing with emotions yeah. is another kind of thing. How do you deal with emotions that are stuck when you don't even know what emotions there are and where they're stuck when you're in the rat race and when you suddenly yeah. have space, like, oh, I can feel them suddenly. Okay. How do I deal with that? How do I process them? How do I release them? And all of, yeah, this self-renewal is, is there and it's, it's really true. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Why well, I, I think you just hit on so many important areas. And I think the broader theme that I hear you describing is, is two things, the, the way in which kind of creating conditions, the environment, the routine, you know, opened up the space that made it possible for these things to emerge. But also I feel like, you know, one thing that has happened in my life is when you change the way you approach something, anything really, like in this case, like, you know, exercise, that you change the how you do it, where all of a sudden it goes from forceful to intuitive and easy and, and just, you know, fluid. It doesn't just benefit the exercise, but that stuff starts to ripple across your life. And it doesn't even matter which one you begin with, if it's exercise or stretching or, you know, breath work and, and all these different things like those, any one of those is a portal to start with. So I, I'm curious, like how, how, as all these things are emerging and, and changing for you, you know, how is that affecting your day-to-day -day life? Like what, what are you noticing that's different now? Yeah, this is, um, this is part of the fundamental renewal that's happening uh, that's happening to me. So I think some of the fundament the fun the most fundamental thing that I um I have already started learning and I'm still, you know, continuously every day uh, learning more and more is I'm understanding my wants a lot more than I used to. So if I go like before and after, before I went on sabbatical, I don't think, I didn't know what I wanted. I knew what I should be doing at all times. I knew what was good for me from the perspective of my career or from what looked like a, a good and happy and constructive and useful life. I knew what I should be doing. And I think after all of this decade-long career at work and working for meaningful things, I had completely confused what I wanted with what I should be doing because what I, I, I ultimately felt that what I should be doing was what I wanted to do. And one of the, one of the, so yeah, so for example, I want this, I want this promotion or I want this other job. Um, because it'll give me, I don't know, more exposure to senior management, more impact in the company, and I'll actually probably change the course of the company to an extent that it will have a good impact on the energy transition in the UK. Cool. I want that job. But I also wanted, wanted in inverted commas, that job because it was the next most logical step on the path and what felt like the right path to lead my life. But that was it didn't come from a, it, the, the want and came from my head rather than from my gut in a way. Mm, but yeah. now, uh, now that I've been on sabbatical for a while, now that I've made that space for things to express themselves and for, yeah, for, for, for my body to tell me more things, um, I, I can now feel what I truly want 
um, rather than what I should be doing. I can also, I can distinguish those things. And sometimes I know that I should be joining the house, the, the, the people who live in the house that, you know, we're in a common house with a lot, with lots of different, um, spaces for everyone. And we've got one of those spaces. And sometimes we have drinks with those people. And I know I should be joining drinks with those people, but on that specific evening, I know that I don't want to, because whatever, insert <laughs> random reason I'll go, you know, most of the time, but there are times where I, my gut tells me no. And if you go, not only are you going to not really participate and it's not going to be an enjoyable experience, you're actually um, consciously doing something that's detrimental to me, my body. Um, and instead of doing something that I deeply, my, my gut deeply wants me to do, which might be actually you need to stretch right now. You, I, I want you to stretch right now. I want you to rest and nap or I want you to work right now. Instead of doing those things, you're going to go socialize with a bunch of people, lovely people, but that's going to drain energy from you that then you won't have to do what you genuinely need. And that distinction between the wants and the shoulds has been, um, is something that I started making a bit before Bali and that has strengthened dramatically as I arrived in, in Indonesia and in Bali. And now I'm a lot clearer on, on what it is that I want to be doing that's probably one of the most, that, that sense of embodiment and that sense of understanding what my wants are is probably the biggest shift that I've experienced in my sabbatical. It's so interesting to hear you describe the the wants and the, and the shoulds because I think I've discovered similar language and, and a similar shift as I've reconnected with my body. And it's, yeah, I, those pesky shoulds, I, I guess they... I guess they come from our heads and they and and they come from you know our rational evaluation of what we think that other people think that we should be doing and these ways that we work ourselves in these mental loops but there's something about just being super connected to your body whether through a workout you know for me breath work as I've gone on different kind of breath work experiences and just it brings you so into your body and at the end of it I'm never kind of stuck in a place of shoulds it's always just like clarity. And, and I don't know, have you, I know you've been exploring breath work. Have you had a, a similar experience with that? Ah, uh, breath work. That's, that's been a, that has been quite a wild ride. Um, so has it helped me connect with my wants? What breath work has done for me and I've had probably, so just, just to explain, Plain a bit. So uh, the kind of breathwork I've been doing has been one-on-one um, -on -one sessions with like a, a breath certified breathwork practitioner who does body work on you at the same time. So effectively what they do is guide your breathing. Um, they help you deepen it, accelerate it, soften it, depending on the journey, um, depending on you, the journey that you're on and your specific journey and how they see that you're feeling. And they do body work at the same time, which means that they kind of help you open up your your body while you're breathing. So while you're activating your nervous systems, nervous system through the breathing process, they open up your body to open up your nervous system in a way even further. Um, and what happens to me, um, and breathwork has been incredible. I, I never expected that it would be, um, that it would change things for me in such a, in the way that it has. Um, what breathwork has been doing for me is that it's been releasing 
it's been making space for my nervous system to kind of come up with all the things that are stuck within it that I didn't even know were stuck. Well, some of them I know that they're stuck somewhere. It's like emotional, emotional stuckness that I have to process. Um, uh, stuff, stuff like, am I really made for this kind of self-directed work or should I be going or, or, or should I rather go back into kind of more corporate jobs or company jobs because they fit what I'm aligned with more. That's something that I'm still exploring. And that's something that emotionally is a bit stuck in my body somewhere because technically I have five months left, so I need to figure it out. <laughs> um, so that it's that kind of stuff. So breath work, what it does is it activates your nervous system to start bringing all of those things that are stuck up. And then once they're in front of you, then you can actually process them. But there are some things also that your nervous system stores and you don't even know that it it's stored somewhere. You don't know that it's causing emotional stuckness in you somewhere, some stuff from your childhood some or, or something that happened in the past two weeks and you kind of brushed off, but actually it made, um, it made a bit of a, it caused a bit of a problem in you and it's now stuck wherever, somewhere in your nervous system. So breathwork brings all of that up and then once it is up there, then you can see it and then you can decide to do something about it. Sometimes in the journey, you actually process the whole thing and you can come out of the journey going like, right, I know what I want to do next. Cool. It's, that was that was easy. I just had to breathe in for an hour and you know, have someone kind of prod my shoulder and <laughs> and I got the answer. Um, and sometimes you don't get the answer. Sometimes breath work just kind of puts that emotional stuckness or emotional problem in front of you um, and you can deal with it. Uh, you have to take time to deal with it outside of the session. And that's also fine because you know what you need to deal with. But that, that's the kind of stuff that um, breathwork has helped unveil for me. It's, it's kind of identifying and releasing this emotional stuckness and then connecting this back to the wants. It kind of helps identify even the wants that you you don't even know you have so it'll put those wants up in front of you out in the open or and it'll use them to kind of solve the problems that you have it's it's a very odd thing if if you'd described it to me i don't know 3 months ago and told me that breathwork was going to change my life um for the best i would have probably said yeah you're exaggerating a bit but it has meaning it has, it has had meaningful um it has helped to make meaningful steps in figuring out what i want and who i truly am really i'm glad you shared that because now we have an end of two so when people think that i'm just joking or exaggerating i'll i'll, I'll play them this clip and, and say hey it's not just me cecile as well uh, but yeah, it's, 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 I really believe it is a powerful modality. And I think that, you know, we're just going to see more of it, you know, just like meditation was nowhere near as big 15, 20 years ago. And now it's kind of very normal. My hope is that, that people will, you know, explore this type of breath work, other types. Um, I just think it, it's such a powerful tool for, for renewal, for, for all of these types of things. I know we're coming up on time. There's there's one last topic that I I want to want to jump into. It's been really fun to track your trajectory, and you know I, I'm just really excited about where you're going. Even though I don't think that I certainly don't know wh where you're going. I'm not sure you know exactly where you're going either, which makes it even more fun. But 
you've shared a bit on, um, you know, this vision document and this collection of, of possible futures and it got me really inspired. And so can you, can you tell everybody a bit about that? Yeah, I'm very happy to, um, basically it all started because, um, it all started during my sabbatical. So the sabbatical helped me make space for other things to emerge than the usual things that I was dealing with while I was working a full-time and intense job. Um, and in the beginning, nothing much emerged. It was just more me traveling around writing and doing a bunch of things. But, um, but at some point it's kind of like I started to, to join some of the dots and things started to coalesce a bit more in a way. And I started get, I started getting the feeling that actually what had driven me for the past five years in working for this company was that I made I was making a really big difference in the world. And the, the world was the world of the energy transition at this point in the UK. It's like my work is having a direct impact on this company that has decided to take a leading role in the energy transition. Excellent. That's hyper meaningful. And I really enjoyed having that drive for five years. But technically, and then and then when I and then when I stepped outside of the corporate world, started writing, started being more active online, I started discovering, you know, bits and pieces of, that people were sharing about how they thought that we were, we were, we were headed towards a golden age for humanity. And I, that got me really excited because I, I, I truly believed already that, yes, we can solve the energy transition. It's, we're going to go through some hard spots, hard patches, but we can solve this. Um, and we've got some really good people working on it. Um, and then suddenly those people who were sharing this idea of a golden age for humanity um, kind of came up and I was like, oh, but okay, it's not just about solving the energy transition. We've got loads of kind of big human problems. What about the other ones? Can we solve those ones too? And I started thinking about this and doing a bunch of reading and things started kind of coalescing into a, a kind of a, a statement in my mind of, yes, I believe in a better future. I believe we're kind of building a new golden age for humanity. And I want to be a part of it. Everyone has, you know, their own skills, character, backgrounds that they can bring into solving this problem in the same way that when you're joining a corporate, you bring your own skills, character and background to help solve the problem of the corporate. But technically, building a better future for humanity is everyone's well, is, is everyone who wants to take it, everyone's job for whoever wants to take it. But a lot of people actually want to take it on. They actually want to make a difference. And depending on what, on what skills they have and experience they have and background they have, they might do it in different ways. And that's great because we need all of those pieces of the puzzle to happen so that we can build the actual puzzle and, and build the whole future together. And everything that everyone wants to do matters on that journey. So that's when I started pulling together the, um, the vision doc or strategy doc that you were referring to earlier. It's like, okay, I believe in that better future. I believe that because of my background and my experience, I believe that businesses have a huge role to play in this, but they need to be purpose-led business, businesses, businesses that genuinely want to make a change towards building that better future. Cool. Okay. Purpose-led businesses is important. But it's not enough to just have a purpose as a business because you can have, you know, 
a purpose-led business that kind of attracts a bunch of, you know, really good people to come work on that purpose. But if it's not a nice place to work in, then those people are not going to stay. They're going to go somewhere else, somewhere where they find, you know, community and and meaning and where they feel rewarded and, and valued. So those purpose-led businesses need to become great places to work as well. So I want to help build those scenes. I want to help build, I want to help businesses transition into a world where they, where as many of them are purpose-led and driven towards building that better future, whatever, you know, aspect of the better future that business is interested in. And I also want them to kind of be great places to work. So they attract the best people or the people who are driven by that purpose specifically to work on that purpose and work well and work with others. But that's kind of, that's kind of still theoretical in the same way that we were talking about corporates as a, as a blob rather than of made out of individual people who work together. If I say purpose-led businesses that are great places to work are like this, one of the solutions to building a better future, that's still kind of like talking about a theoretical blob, (laughs) but I, I, uh, the change that's going to come is going to come from people within those businesses. Um, it's, it's the people that are within the business who are going to make a difference and the change is going to happen from the inside out. So what I want to work on most is finding those people who are capable of making that change. Who are the kind of ambitious, driven, collaborative people who want to do exceptional work in, in, in service of that better future? I want to find them. I want to help them grow as much as possible. I also want to help people who want to become those kinds of people develop into uh, into being those people. And right now, I'm not sure what that looks like just yet. It's just a kind of a statement of intent that I'm yeah. putting out there so that I find others who are kind of excited about this kind of this, this same vision and want to want to work with me on it. But that's that's kind of what's in the vision doc that I shared on Twitter, but I've been progressing and iterating on it in my head since then. I wake up at night at like 1am going like, oh, what about this? <laughs> and then I have to start writing down in case I forget it. And then I integrate it in the next day. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's very alive for me at the moment. And it's something that I'm, I'm really driven by. So if, if you know, always happy to talk about it. Um, it feels like one of the great big things that everyone can contribute to in their own way and that all of the own ways are extremely valuable. We'll link to it in in the show notes because I think that it it just comes to life in the way that you present it. And I think the idea of everybody coming together and contributing to that is, is such a powerful one. There's there's two ideas from John Gardner, who is the the author that planted this this idea of self-renewal in my head. And he talks about how the self-renewal of society is driven by the self-renewal of individuals. And I think that's exactly what you were talking about within these organizations. And I think the other piece that to me is the most important part and is so related to what you're talking about is that in order for society to, to, to be go through a chapter of renewal, and I think we all feel that we're, we're in one of those, right? There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of concern out there about where, where we're going. But in order to do that, we all need a, a shared vision worth striving for. He talks about how like the biggest thing that we, the, the biggest thing that will keep people, hold them back, keep them from doing anything is when they've lost sense of anything worth striving for. 
And that's why when I saw what you're doing, I was just like, yes, like this is what we need. We need to collect these possible futures. We need to show people like, hey, these are the things that matters. This is where you can contribute. You know, if we don't come together and create that shared vision, you know, I think it's, I think that's the the thing that keeps me up at night the most. So yeah, that's well, thank you for the shout out. It's um, I'm glad to see that it feels so alive in in others and in you, uh, in you in particular. The you're, you're so right about about the fact that we need those inspirational futures to actually instill energy and and inspiration in in people to to start believing that they can actually do something about it. And the thing is, I I don't we don't know what the answer is. We don't know what that better future looks like. So we actually can't already sketch out a better future of what the better future looks like in 50 years time or in in a, in a hundred year time, in a hundred years time, or even in a thousand years time, there's, there's no way of knowing because it's, it's going to change every single day as we progress through towards that future. Even the energy transition in the UK, initially the 2050 targets, you know, net zero targets were kind of almost an unattainable goal. And now as we walk, you know, we, we kind of work towards them, some people are starting to say, actually, we might be able to do that. We might be able to reach them before 2050. And you're like, yes, yes, let's, you know, update our mental view of what future, what the future looks like. And what we need to do is, what I want to do rather is more like bring together a collection of what those futures look like. Because building that one future that we all strive towards, I don't think we can do. It's, it's just, or if we do, then it's going to be wrong and we're going to have to update it regularly, which which might be something that's worthwhile doing as well. But in the meantime, I just want to kind of collect a bunch of different kinds of futures that hopefully will inspire loads of different kinds of people who then have energy or feel energized into taking action towards the future that they feel inspired about. So yeah, that's a one of the other angles. So I'm glad that you mentioned Gardner's... <laughs> Gardner's point on this. <laughs> yeah, I, t- I totally agree. I think, you know, I, I think of it as, you know, we know change is constant. We know we can't predict the future. And that's why I love the frame so much of how can we create conditions, build capacity? Like, w- what can we be doing today? We can be building these things in so we're capable of evolving, adapting into ourselves, our organizations, which I think you brought to life so much today. I'm, I'm really excited to share this conversation because I think we think so much about it from an individual perspective. I think we get scared about it from a societal perspective. And then in this messy middle, there's all these huge organizations that are shaping our world. And I think you're talking about how they can go through their own process of renewal driven by the people, which I think is super powerful. So I think this is a great place to, to, to wrap, but I'll, I'll just ask, is there anything else that you want to share? Any, any final words or um, calls to action to people? Ah, oh, calls to action. Uh, well, probably just one because it feels like it's the, it's the, uh, it's the right one in the, in the flow of the conversation that we've been having up until now. But um, just I'm just going to invite people to think about what that better future, what that inspirational future looks like for them. What does it mean to move towards a better future and what matters to you? And then if you already have an example of what that looks like, and it might be words, an article, it might be a piece of art, it might be a poem, it might be whatever it is, start sharing it and see see who resonates with it. Find the others and then you'll start getting, 
you know, energy to work towards that common future that you both or that the group believes in. I love that. I think I, it will be amazing to see a growing collection of these and I, I think it'll, it'll inspire us all. So thank you so much, Cecile, for joining. This was a, a ton of fun and I really appreciate you coming and sharing your experiences and perspective. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. 